Hello and welcome to Bitcoin with Jake. Today I've got Jason Sansone. Is that how I say it correctly, Jason? Sansoni. Sansoni. Okay, my apologies. Uh, welcome, Jason. How are you? I'm great. I'm excited to have a nice chat here. It's always fun meeting other Bitcoiners. Yeah, 100%. No, I'm keen as well. We, we were getting carried away before we clicked record. There's obviously lots in common for us to discuss. So um, as a starting point, could you please give us an introduction to the projects you're involved in at the moment? And uh, shout out to Daz B, who introduced us as part of your uh, Looking Glass Education project. Um, but there's probably some other bits and pieces you're involved in. So let us know a bit about yourself in the, in the present moment, please. Yeah, no, happy to. So um, I would rewind about two years back to uh, even less, perhaps about November of 2020, October, November of 2020. So approaching two years now. Um, prior to that, didn't know the first thing about Bitcoin, had heard about it a couple of times, um, usually in passing reference and oftentimes as the butt of a joke. And so I really wasn't paying any heed to it. Always interested in financial markets, capital markets, primarily equities, and just interested in the way the world worked, but never a ton of, of um, digging deeper, so to speak, beyond just uh, equity markets and stuff of that nature. So um, Preston Pish had broken out from his investors podcast network to form a Bitcoin specific podcast, which you know I presume most of the listeners are familiar with. And it was then that I kind of started down the rabbit hole. So that's a whole nother story and we can get there. But at the present moment, um, uh, my primary project outside of my, my usual full-time job is uh, with uh, the group called Looking Glass, which Jake, I know you're familiar with, but, but basically DASB, Greg Foss is kind of the, the mold that holds us all together. And the whole group started because I had reached out to Greg really just to ask him a question. And, uh, and here we are now six, eight months later with a, with a really robust core of people and, and um, starting to do a lot of work on that, in that regard. Yeah. And I've, I've read some of the, um, the opening program that you guys have put together at Looking Glass. And it's really awesome, as Daz described it, grassroots financial education. And um, it's so important, not the kind of stuff you necessarily get taught in school and helps you to see the world for what it is in a sense. So I think what you're doing is, is awesome. Well, and that's the issue, right? Is that there, there, A, there is a need for education, absolutely a need for education. B, the school system is not educating students on financial issues. And, and look, I'm not this, I'm not a huge conspiracy theorist, but if, allow me to put my tinfoil hat on just for a second. I suspect there's a reason that they're not educating folks about this stuff, right? I mean, I remember back to when I was in high school and my basic economics course was kind of Paul Krugman, Keynesian economics, supply and demand curves, and nothing at all about inflation, you know, government spending, debt to GDP ratios, any of it, none of that ever was discussed. And so really, quite frankly, um, if I'm somebody who's sitting in a seat in government designing curriculum to teach students, I don't really have a whole lot of interest in teaching them about how, how governments fund themselves through financial repression via inflation and how that hurts you know, the working class and we can get into all that. 
Um, and the fact is we have a, a large group of the population as in 99% of the population that doesn't actually understand how the global monetary system works. And so uh, that's kind of our mission at Looking Glass was we believe that everybody is entitled to know. Um, we try to produce timeless content that just is bit very conceptual in nature, right? Like we're not trying to impart our belief system or opinions on other people. We're not trying to have it be a newsy platform. We really want to just simply teach people how the global monetary system works. And then our thought is that through this education, it empowers people to think for themselves, which is another, another area where the society is sorely in need. But in, if people are able to think for themselves, they will naturally gravitate towards Bitcoin as a, as a, a hard money store of value, you know, so on and so forth. So um, we kind of, our platform concludes with Bitcoin instead of starts with Bitcoin. Which is a really nice way of doing it, in my opinion. Um, all of us as, as Bitcoin bulls, very guilty of kind of forcing it down people's throats sometimes, you know, what, why don't you get it? Or getting upset that people don't get it. Um, and this is a really nice, uh, let's say, iteration of that problem. It's like, okay, well, how about we teach people about the problems that we see elsewhere and how we made the conclusion that we have. Um, and so it's like that stepping stone process, isn't it? As you build knowledge, you start to see things for what they actually are. Uh, and Jason, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think I, I, what I, the only other thing I would say to that, Jake, excuse me, is, is that I think the truth is on our side as Bitcoiners, right? So it's not that we need to, it's not that we need to design any extravagant propaganda to convince people to, to become more familiar with this asset or to hold this asset. We just need to explain to them how the world works. And, and once they see that, it, it then logically follows. So you know, that's the comforting thing to me is that I don't, I don't feel like anything we're doing is, is, um, is trying to coerce anybody into getting into Bitcoin. And, and, you know, you're right, is, is that I think oftentimes as Bitcoiners, once we see things with regard to the way the world works, you don't unsee them. And so you become, in a sense, I think to an outsider, you feel as though you're fairly radical, right? And, and, and it's like, whoa, 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 you know, back off here. I, I, you know, I, you're seem really, really passionate about Bitcoin. And um, I think using this as a different approach where somebody where, you know, if you're presenting to, to a friend or a group of people or whom, a family member, whomever, and they say, okay, so then tell me about why I should care about this. I think oftentimes as Bitcoiners, people don't know how to respond to that because they don't have a uh, an easy way of communicating the story mm. that ends with Bitcoin, right? It's like, okay, give me five minutes now and I understand how the world works. And so I can take you from fiat money and talk about debt and talk about inflation and blah, 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 right? And it allows this logical conversation to follow that doesn't sound like absolute propaganda and trying to stiff arm people into being a bitcoiner mm. it's a real challenge um the the truth is people don't like being told what to think like i think you've already mentioned that um <clears throat> and especially if it's like a sibling for example and they're like 
you know, you always have had a rivalry in some sense growing up together. And like, so what you've seen the future and like, Hey, fuck off. Like seriously, <laughs> just fuck off. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure we've all had like many conversations like that. And there's just, there's yeah. no way around it until the day that they eventually walk into a brick wall and realize that their money's disappeared or something's happened and they go, ah, okay, well maybe you were talking about the right vibe, but there's probably a kinder and nicer way of getting to that point beforehand um, than uh, a big problem in their lives. And actually I'm going to be sending looking glass to both my brother and sister after this call. And I can't believe I haven't already done it because it's going to be really useful. Um, But Jason, so to, to, to zoom out a little bit so I can hear the passion for this subject, we can, we can cycle back to it later. Um, you glossed over your day job. I'm assuming that that's given you a set of skills over your career that perhaps make you look at uh, the world in a certain way. Um, teach me a bit about what life was like growing up and the person that you are um, behind this current project. And is there anything yeah. that you can draw to that helped you understand Bitcoin? Um, and once we've kind of looked at that, we'll start to look at, you know, a bit more about March 2020 when you first came across it. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So um, my day job is I'm a orthopedic trauma surgeon. So if you fall off a roof or get smoked by a train or ride your motorcycle into the side of a brick wall, uh, I'm your guy. So I do, you know, fix pelvic fractures and femur fractures and fractures of the arm, basically arms, legs, and pelvis, um, which has absolutely nothing to do with financial markets, oh, by the way, as you can imagine, um, and has nothing to do with uh, the global monetary system. What it does have to do with, though, is what you find out is trauma is not really an accident, right? Trauma is a socioeconomic disease, and it disproportionately, we know this, it disproportionately affects those who are working class slash homeless slash uneducated, it, 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 it disproportionately affects them. And so those are the vast majority of my patients. And those are the people I most closely identify with. That's why I went into trauma surgery because I enjoy treating those folks and developing full relationships with them over time. So that I think is kind of the, when I realized the connection between that population of people and how Bitcoin can be helpful, right? In particular, more helpful um, versus those of us who, who really have a significant amount of financial privilege. Um, that was the reinforcement that, that I needed to really kind of dive deep into this. So, um, but, but aside from that, I mean, uh, background wise, I mean, I've, grew up in a, in a, probably no coincidence. I grew up, both my parents were teachers. My wife's a teacher. My brother-in-law, my sister-in-law are teachers. Um, so there's been always a big education bent to, to a lot of what I've done. I, I do a lot of uh, consulting work for the biomedical industry as well. And that's all what uh, involves teaching. Um, and so I've always had this interest in educating others and, and in, in particular, educating marginalized populations. Um, and so I think that really is a, a good tie-in to the looking glass and what our goal is with that platform. And so Jason, um, for someone who knows very little about the traditional healthcare system, um, how do you become a surgeon? What kind of um, education do you have to go through to, to reach a point where <laughs> yeah, you're you do, a, to do that? 
Yeah, you do a stupid amount of education. I, I actually, um, so high school and then uh, four years undergraduate, four years of medical school, five years of residency, one year of fellowship. So it was a total of 14 years after, wow. after high school, but um, it's all, it's all worth it. It's a, I, it's a wonderful job. I love going to work. I look forward to it every day. I very much enjoy being in the operating room, which is where I spend the vast majority of my time. Wow. And so this is something I find really interesting. Uh, highly educated, highly skilled um, professional like yourself will generate an income and hopefully, and perhaps why you're interested in the equity markets, you're, you're creating a surplus in income versus your expenses and you're effectively you're saving. So, um, or you'd like to save. What does that challenge look like to someone like yourself when you're as busy as you are and your expertise is very clearly in a specific space. Um, what do you do with your your spare money? Is that a problem, or has it been? Um, yeah, just chat to me about that a bit. And, and I, I think there's a lot of people out there in the world that are too busy, highly skilled. It's it's almost this like fiat mining concept. It's like you're better off just doing exactly what you do, and you know if you've worked it out maybe you'll buy some Bitcoin. So yeah, just that problem you might've faced. Just talk to me a bit about that. That is a great question, Jake. So I would tell you that for a lot of people, it is a problem. And I think this gets, this gets to kind of a more philosophical concept. And one of the things that, um, that I oftentimes talk to my younger partners about, which is you gotta be really careful when you ask yourself how much is enough to not always answer with more and and i think that that's a in i mean i, I don't as a bitcoiner want to relate everything to fiat but it's easy to i think in a way that's a construct of living in a fiat society because there is this sense that Again, like you said earlier, the, the ice cube is always melting. There is this sense that you can't just trade your time and energy for money and that that money then becomes something that holds its value over time. You always have a sense, whether you're aware of it or not, that you're losing value and you have to keep up somehow. Quite frankly, I, I would prefer not to have to think about investing ever. I would prefer to be able to just take my savings, put it in a bank and know that that's growing with integrity over time. And that when I'm done with my career that I've spent my life doing, that I have a representation of all that energy and I can spend that and it has the same purchasing power. But the fact is it doesn't. And, and this is that whole idea that you know, Michael Saylor talks about all the time is that a lot of, a lot of us talk about is, which is, you know, inflation steals your time and it steals your energy from you, right? And so you're right. There's a lot of my partners in this in this business who really are on the hamster wheel fiat mining. And they usually are the ones who I see in the doctor's lounge at the age of 65, looking like they are um, completely haggard. Usually they've gone through one or two divorces and are miserable. And I don't want to do that, you know? Um, and so I guess maybe I became a reluctant expert in financial markets, right? Because at the end of the day, I really just enjoy operating on people. 
Amazing. I think there are so many people out there like you. And this is what's mm -hmm. kind of exciting in some senses about focusing on Bitcoin education, because people will just get it. And I, I like talking about it as a savings technology. It's not an investment, just a way of Brilliant. saving. And now actually Brilliant. all the investing you've been doing, you don't need to do any of it because this is as good a bet as any of the best investments you've ever made, um, arguably makes better returns. And so therefore you can actually focus on what you love doing or what you're highly specialized at doing. Um, it's it's an excellent use case for Bitcoin. I love it. And it's very much a process you've been through. I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more, Jake. I mean, you and I see it the very same way. And, and I, that's the thing is, you know, it's like, how do you, how do you describe Bitcoin to, if somebody says, give me five words, right? Or something, give me the one minute spiel on Bitcoin. I agree with you. I go, I go directly to, it allows you to save your time and energy, right? Like it's a savings technology. And, you know, cryptos as a general rule, those can be investments, right? The, I, I view it as there's Bitcoin and there's everything else. Yeah. The everything else pile, that can be an investment. You can try to, you know, shoot for the stars knowing that there's a, a high chance that you're holding on to a Luna or Terra or, or yeah. whatever, something that'll blow up. Fine, do whatever you want, but don't conflate that with the idea of a true store of value. Yeah, wonderful. It's great advice. And it's, it, it does take some studying and hence the, the, the emphasis on education is so important. Um, what, what I'd like to slightly cycle back to Jason is this concept you mentioned about trauma and it being a disease. Can you flesh that out a bit more? I don't necessarily follow what you mean. Yeah, so yeah, good question. And I always assume people kind of uh, have had my experiences. So I, I think it's very similar to what Luke Groman would say are uh, um, diseases or deaths of economic hopelessness, which is, is a way that Luke um, describes what's happened to the manufacturing sector in the United States after we've exported all of our manufacturing to China. Is basically when you live in an environment in which you really don't have mastery over your own life, you don't have independence, you don't have autonomy, and you don't have any income or an income that's less than you'd like, in particular, given how stratified society is with regard to wealth inequality. You essentially, there's, there's a significant amount of, of um, behaviors that I think go along with that. So drug use, um, poor decision-making, right? Um, a lack of respect for one's own body, for the people around them. Um, effectively, you know, these are patients who come in after a trauma and who are, you can tell that, that once they recover from this, they're still going to continue to make poor decisions, right? They're still going to doing that and I, and I would argue that a lot of that is a function of the fact that these are economically and educationally marginalized people they're, they don't have a whole lot of hope that their life gets better they don't have a whole lot of hope that oh if I just were to you know go to school and get this job that that I could get out of this cycle no it generally tends to be the same archetype of person right poor education poor family, history of violence in their past, history of, 
of drug use, all those sorts of things. And, and, and I, I have to believe that part of that involves them looking around at society and understanding, wow, there's somebody who has more than me. They have more than me. They have more than me. That's unattainable. I'll never be able to, to claw my way out of this. And I need, um, I need assistance from somebody. I need, um, you know, basically, you know, universal basic income. I need an injection of money all the time. And that's just, that's just my life. Yeah. It's, that um, makes sense. Absolutely. And what's so scary about this, and I must reflect on, you know, my privileged position in terms of the, the wealth I inherited as a younger man. And, you know, I don't choose my parents, but it, it's a fact of my life. I haven't necessarily had to, to worry in the same way that you describe someone um, uh, or some of your patients. What's really scary is when you start looking at some of the statistics. And I'm sure I've read that something like 50% of Americans don't have any savings whatsoever. Oh, yeah. If, if 50%. More. Yeah. Like, yeah. What? Crazy. And yeah. then when you start looking at the, the really insidious nature of inflationary monetary policy, the, the people without assets, i.e. the poor that, you know, are wage earners and get paid in cash are, are, are affected in a much more aggressive way than those at the other end of the scale that are able to own real estate or own equities or own government debt or wherever they decide to park their value, so to speak. Um, and that's a, a real travesty that, just blows my mind how have we not worked out that this is the problem and, and i i've seen articles recently about how inflation is going to save us i mean the propaganda for this this, this yeah. system is extraordinary and in some ways we have to unlearn so much yeah. of what we were taught and go hang on this doesn't make sense does it and then at least this is how i found it once you start getting a bit deeper it actually really starts to make sense why so much in the world you see around you is happening um, yeah, exactly. I won't bang on about that too much, but it, it's extraordinary the amount of people that are in the position you mentioned. This isn't just like a, a small section of society. It's actually a huge amount of people that, you know, are living week to week with no money. And yeah, you know, you're right. Like, this is why Bitcoin is so exciting, right? Is, is somehow can we get through to this community of people? So, so how do you see, you're obviously passionate about performing surgery on this type of character. Um, Bitcoin obviously plays into that sense of um, uh, you really want to help them, right? So how, how does that combine and, and what makes you excited about that? Yeah, you know, I, well, back to a couple of points you made, because I think you have a really great way of encapsulating the essence of what we're talking about here, Jake. And, and so I think, you know, a couple of things. One, hence the term, the looking glass, right? In other words, that whole idea of unlearning what we've come to believe is the way that just money works hmm. and looking at it through, you know, it's a reference to the Alice in Wonderland, right? Where you, where you see things differently through the looking glass and see, see kind of react, you peel back the curtain, see reality. Right. And, and there's, I think some of it's propaganda, no doubt. I think literally the rest of it is just complete uneducated people who are writing articles about how yeah i saw one recently too about you know the real reason why uh why inflation is going to go away is because it hurts rich people i mean it was it just isn't true it's just not even true right and so you wonder how it is that somebody could be so misinformed 
Um, because I think most people have good intentions. I think that that person who wrote that probably had a good intentions of assuming that that was the case, but it couldn't be further from the truth, right? And how do we go about teaching? So, so, so back to your point, I, what I love about managing trauma patients and similarly what I love about Bitcoin is the whole idea that you could actually create a society where people are sovereign and individually responsible for themselves. And on occasion, doesn't happen every time by any stretch, but on occasion, you'll make a breakthrough with one of, one of your trauma patients where they'll come back and see you a year out from their trauma and say, you know, I cleaned up my act. I went to school. I got a job. Thank you. I have an intact family and, you know, so on and so forth. That's what makes all this worth it. And what's at the core of that? Well, the core of that is having a, some self-efficacy and, and a belief in oneself that you actually are empowered to do good things in the world. And you are empowered to be individually sovereign, right? And in Bitcoin, the whole concept of it allows you to have that relationship with your own money, um, which I think is a really is a really great thing. That's what I'd wish for anybody, right? It's amazing that that isn't how life already is in some sense, yeah. right? Like we right. work our nuts off, whether you're working in white collar jobs, surgery, I've got plenty of friends working in as, as lawyers or as accountants or as brokers, you know, I spent a long time in, in that kind of space. Um, they work fucking hard for their money. And it's just, it's not theirs, right? The moment they get it, it's like, crap, got to stick it into fine wine or <laughs> whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. people decide to put their money into to try and keep what's theirs. And the same applies to those at the, the, the bottom end of the socioeconomic scale that, that you mentioned that, you know, we just don't have a relationship with our money. That's like, it's not safe. You know, we all, yeah, we all know healthy, something's up, safe. right? Yeah. Um, what I'd love to, to draw on, Jason, is um, just talk to me about one of the success stories of your patients uh, in some more detail, because I'm intrigued. I hadn't really thought about what this would be like, but let's say I am living paycheck to paycheck and life looks pretty dull, pretty dim, like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. I've got a couple kids and I get hit by, you know, I get an injured at work, let's say. And I'm like, bang, I'm down and out. I'm on this table. I've basically been drinking too much or taking drugs or whatever. And suddenly like your face appears above them uh, through the kind of haze of, of, of the drugs and, and painkillers they would have taken. Um, someone is basically at point zero, I imagine, in terms of psychologically, they're like, fuck, I almost died basically. And how, whoa, what does this all mean? So Talk to me a bit about the mindset that you meet these people in and, and just a, a, one of your favorite stories in terms of the success that you have. Mm. Yeah, um, I, have, I have a lot. I, have, I keep this little collection in my office of um, kind of thank you notes from people. And I envision someday, I mean, when I retired, sitting down and just reading through all of them because it really, it, it, oh, it makes you I cry. <laughs> Yeah, right. No, totally. It makes you realize oh. that you've had a, a, a positive impact on, on people. But um, there's so there's a lot of patients that come to mind. But one, one, I guess, in particular, as you're talking about this. So um, unfortunately, we see a lot of folks with heroin addiction. And um, this was one such patient who was a mother of two. 
um, working as a, I believe it was a waitress or something in, in food service, paycheck to paycheck. And most of, uh, most of the, the income she had was going into drugs. And I, I think there was probably more, more going on with regard to being able to get um, drugs, but suffice to say, she was pretty deep in the throes of this. And she had two young children who were visiting her in the hospital. Um, and when I first met her, she was just extremely, I think, angry at life, right? Um, I came, I come into the room, I represent um, somebody who, th who thinks that they're better than, than, you know, folks like her, who looks down on her, who, who um, is talking down to her, all these types of things. I think that's her perception. And over the course of, of treating her surgically for a couple trips to the operating room and sitting down with her on numerous occasions and talking to her and having her understand, like, look at the only difference between, and I truly think this, the only difference between her and I is one bad decision, right? Like I, I mean, and, and probably like we mentioned earlier, winning the DNA lottery, right? Because if I'm born into the family she was born into, it's very easy to envision yourself in her shoes. And so having those discussions with her and talking to her about, you know, I'd love to see you make better decisions. How can I help you get back on your feet? What can we do together? I'm only, you know, I'm only your surgeon. It's not like I can now come and live with me, but like, is there any way I can help you get back on your feet and be a mom again, all these sorts of things. And, and long story short, after nine or 12 months, you know, her, her injuries had recovered. She was, she was doing well physically. And she had um, come back to my office simply to tell me, hey, thanks. You know, I actually have been clean for a year. I've got a job. I'm going back to school. Um, you know, and it's, and it, it, it is one of those things I think about her and other patients like her often because you know that's that's the stuff that means something in your life you know wow and and if you could think back to maybe you were a teenager um like when did you first know that you wanted to go to medical school and being able to tell the story you just told me was that the reason that you went perhaps yeah my well so i think the reason i went was my my mother was a special education teacher and so i always had this um, I think this proclivity for helping folks who just didn't have it as, as easy, right? And so, um, and then similarly realizing that I could not ever survive in a classroom as a teacher, like there's no way. I mean, so it was, it was this whole thing about, you know, I loved science and I really wanted to help people who were less fortunate and, you know, here we are. So yeah, I knew that from when I was in high school. The first time I walked in the operating room, I said, this is what I want to do. I know this is what I want to do. And I was a sophomore in high school. So, and how old is that roughly? Uh, 15. Yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah. Which I think is exactly what you just said. <laughs> no, well, it just, it's, I just, I love people's, like learning about people's lives, like the decisions that we make at different times for different reasons. And it's really just, it's about 
looking at people's decision-making processes and where they get inspiration from. And there's all sorts of different people in their lives or different situations that they end up in that, that form what their life becomes and who they are today. And um, that's something that I'm really passionate about learning from people and helping tell their stories. And the, the next phase of where this goes, Jason, is <clears throat> I can see that something drives you that is about you know getting skilled yourself and making the right decisions but also then therefore helping people less fortunate yourselves than than yourself with like life-changing surgery <laughs> they might not live without this fucking thing um bring in bitcoin and you go oh my god this is kind of the same and so yeah. the way that you're able to help people and talk to them in in a moment where they're down and out and they look at you and you're like this guy is the system fuck the system and somehow you get through to them whatever it is you do that bit of magic but you know what it is would help that. yeah agreed but you know what it is is i think they understand very quickly that i'm not the system because okay. i'm just as fucked up as they are hmm. and i'm an open book with them about it i've had my own struggles with drinking too much i've had my own struggles with poor decision making with relationship stresses. I mean, my wife and I, um, who, God bless her, she is an extremely strong and dedicated woman. My wife and I were on the verge of a divorce six years ago where we were living separately for a year and a half, right? Like I, I am by no means better or holier than anybody else out there. And I wear that on my sleeve and I'm happy to tell patients like, look at, I'm not telling you that I got all the answers. And I'm not telling you that it's easy to quit using drugs or to quit drinking. I get it, it isn't. But I'm also telling you like, I'm gonna level with you, here's the God's honest truth. And, and here's you know, steps A, B, and C that I have walked in my life and that you could walk too. And trust me, it will get better on the other side, right? But there's, there's a whole lot of kind of being honest with yourself and being emotionally, uh, emotionally intelligent enough and emotionally mature enough to handle kind of the way life works. And in, in that process, Jake, I think one of the things that happens is you're able to allow your ego to disappear a little bit and you're able to kind of see yourself for the big emotional immature child that you can often act as. And you kind of can at least step aside and like laugh at yourself mm. some days, you know, and understand how, how similar to everybody else you really are. And if you can, I think, communicate that to people, you instantly, they connect with you because they see you're, you put your pants on the same way they do every morning, right? Mm. Wow, thank you for sharing that. It's obviously, you know, life is a roller coaster. We don't know what's gonna happen, when it's gonna happen, how we're gonna react to it, make mistakes, of course we do. Being able to own them, obviously is a really important part of that. Um, and through my experience in the startup space, there was the phrase, make failure your friend. And mm -hmm. this was really a, a process of like, you've got you've to keep trying new things. Some stage, something will come off. Um, and when it doesn't work, it hurts. It really fucking hurts. Mm -hmm. However, there's probably a whole load of things you learned from it that make you bigger and stronger than what you realize at the time when you're like, fuck how yeah. does it happen a whole lot a whole lot more than when you're winning right and mm. and you look back on those events and, and it's it's funny right like when i look back on the, the things in my life that have helped form who i am <laughs> they're not things that i've achieved 
there are the times when I've been totally fucked, you know, in many different ways. And you, you, you know, like they always say, when the, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And, you know, it's through some of those humbling experiences that you suddenly realize like, oh shit, I don't have it all figured out. And, you know, and, and that's what makes you human. Interesting. I love that phrase. When the student is ready, the teacher appears. And, and so where I'd like to cycle to now is um, you mentioned you had an interest in equities. Um, this, I'm assuming, is based on the fact that you were generating income, you're positive cash flow, and you're like, what the hell do I do with this stuff? So just talk me through your experience of the equities markets and, and how you got on there. Yeah. So um, it's interesting. I, I, Daz and I have actually spoken about this, and, and we both came to the same conclusions interestingly was you know when you're doing your in, in some of your listeners probably aren't as versed or interested in the, in the financial market so as a i can't i can't help but make sure everybody's on similar footing and teach a little bit so when you are learning about how to value a business from an equity perspective right classically you'll look at cash flows and try to do a discounted cash flow analysis meaning you try to value the present and all the future cash flows from that business and come up with what's called a discount, discounted cash flow model to arrive at a value of all those cash flows today. And when you're doing that, one of the main inputs is the risk-free rate, or you know, there's a bunch of different ways you can describe that, but basically the discount rate, which is typically what the rate would be on an investment that has no risk. So as you're running those calculations, you start to see that, well, this risk-free rate part here is really important. But then you look around and you say, well, how is it that the risk-free rate uh, return on your money in Europe is negative? Like that, wait, that doesn't make sense. And how is it that the risk-free rate in the United States is less than inflation. Well, that doesn't make sense. And as you start to try to look at just generally equities and how they're valued, and then you, you look at PE ratios and, and the extreme valuations that are, that are ubiquitous in the equity markets you know, of late, since really since 2008, since the last 15-year bull run in equities, you know, you're, you say, well, none of these equities are investable. These are all, these are all priced to have a two, 3% return. And, you know, and, and the math gets a little fuzzy, but for people who aren't so interested in this kind of stuff, the point is when I look at the, the available universe of equities out there and compared it to what they were priced at versus their cash flows, it became fairly obvious that there was nowhere to put my money that would earn where I could expect to earn 10, 12%. And so it makes you look around for, well, where's another place that I could put excess cash flows, right? Um, and so that gets you into typical savings things like gold, silver, you know, is there monetary metals? Is there, you know, is there a, a, a bond? portfolio you could buy that that gives you a reasonable return for the risk you take and really there was no way when you try to approach it intelligently and in a in a formulaic mathematical way there was really nowhere to go with it 
And um, so that's kind of the backdoor approach to how I found Bitcoin as well. And it's an important journey. The, the, the phrase that we touched on <clears throat> was when the student is ready, the teacher appears. In some senses, the, the additional cash flow that you were generating as a surgeon required you to learn about something different, right? You were ready to learn about how to look after this money. And then, you know, you maybe spent, what, 10 years looking at the equities markets? Like how long? Yeah, yeah 10 years. Wow. Yeah. So you would have spent a huge amount of hours um, trying to work out how to, you know, keep what was yours. And in you know, meantime, things aren't going so well at home or you're meeting all these trauma patients and like, whoa, life is hectic sometimes. Um, what do you think, I mean, you've just taught me through it in a sense, but what do you think was the biggest lesson from that equities analysis that you did that helps you view Bitcoin with a positive light? I think, you know, I think um, one of the people that I, that I really look up to that's been a big uh, influence on me is, is Preston Pish. And I think Preston, um, we, we, we had the pleasure of being on, on his podcast a few nights ago and, Awesome. Um, um, but he puts it really well, which is when every market is manipulated, right? When, when the whole system is manipulated, there's no, there's no truth in, in equity pricing. And so when the whole base layer, meaning the risk-free rate and money itself is being manipulated, how can you possibly uh, accurately value the value of business? value future cash flows and, and you know he says it too and i agree with him look I, I would love for this system to change so that i can just get back to doing concentrated value investing which is something i enjoy doing right but until the signals in the market are are not manipulated until there's actually truth in the money is really difficult to, to justify spending hours upon hours researching equity investments because the whole thing is manipulated by the money. Um, and so th th at the least, Bitcoin offers uh, something where I don't have this sense that there's, well, there's really no way to manipulate it. <laughs> it just is, right? And there's value in that. And just to, to unpack a little more, what does the risk-free rate mean and how is it calculated? Yeah. Was interesting in how it's calculated because I, I think that you could have a lot of discussion about that. But the risk-free rate classically has been the interest rate that the U.S. Uh, pays on its treasury bonds. So you know, typically you can look at a yield curve and say, well, if I if I lend the government money for one year, then I get, you know, if I lend them hundred dollars for a year, I get one hundred and one dollars back. So that interest rate, you know. Is, 1% for 10 years, it's higher and usually kind of slopes upward and to the right. And so that risk-free rate, quote unquote, is because, you know, the U.S. will never default on its debt. And um, as they say, you know, you have the full faith and credit of the, of the United States behind that. So that's been assumed to be risk-free. Um, and then everything gets priced above that, which with what's called a risk premium added to it. So, you know, the risk-free rate's 2% and you want to invest in high yield corporate debt, then that's at a 5% rate because it's that much more risky 
for default than U.S. Treasuries. And if you want to invest in equities, well, that's even more risky than high yield bonds. So that should give you an 8% return, right? So everything that you base your, your discounted cash flow and your valuation models off of really relies on that risk-free rate being accurate. The problem is that when yield curves are manipulated by central banks, when you have central banks paying negative interest rates, which doesn't even make sense, it's like, if it doesn't make sense to people listening, you're right. It doesn't make any sense. Mm. You know, and, and so, so when, when the base signals are all screwed up like that, there's no fucking way you can possibly accurately understand valuations. So interesting. Um, yeah. And so, so, you know, yeah, the risk-free rate is, is I think um, there, you know, people talk about natural interest rate and all that kind of stuff. The, the interest rate right now on debt that's quote unquote risk-free, which one could argue it's not even risk-free, is so manipulated that you don't even know what the true rate is. Yeah, wow. Uh, it's, it's a funny term, isn't it? risk-free. I mean, yeah. to my mind, owning government debt is not risk-free. That, like, how can it be? You know, it's a government. It's, it's an organization. They have, you know, stakeholders and they have taxpayers and they have you know, they might go to war. There's any number of reasons why owning a government's debt would have some kind of risk. And so just the very phrase in itself is a, right. a lure into a, a, a state of, um, of confidence. And it, it strikes me, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely confident that everyone listening to this will have run Microsoft Excel spreadsheets or whatever in the past. If one cell in your spreadsheet is wrong, the whole thing is wrong, Yeah. right? And yep, it's like exactly. you're building out a uh, an investment stack or a tech stack, even you know, like even, let's think about building a house, right? You put the foundations to the house and you build everything on top of it. The foundations are dodgy, the house falls over. It's the same kind of concept, isn't it? Wow, Precisely. how interesting! And so, and and, and just to to that point, Jake, for one second, yeah, go for it. Not to not to shill an article, but Greg Foss and I writ, wrote wrote an article. Um, that we published is a three-part piece that we published in Bitcoin Magazine, specifically about fixed income markets, mm-hmm. and um, and we cover a lot of this kind of stuff, yield curves and and uh, you know risk-free rates and and as you say, the fact that it's really not risk-free and how you measure that, and you know you can get into credit the credit default swap markets and looking at, mm-hmm. at predicted default rates. Uh, for sovereign debt so yeah you're right it isn't it isn't risk-free and that is a complete misnomer and what strikes me as important about this is that uh money is uh obviously an integral part of how you build a society and what we're talking about here is a money system that is manipulated in favor of whoever controls it and actually that means that the society that we're building globally is manipulated and is that therefore a fair place to um, put your time and energy into well the answer is no it's not fair and that's why perhaps we see so much of the um, the, the destruction and the terror and the, the fear and the suffering around the world that we do it's because of the money and then this phrase fix the money fix the world comes in brilliantly and it's something that I'm very passionate about is it just makes so much sense okay, we've now got this thing that's neutral from government, can't be changed, that everyone in the world can participate in. 
to save their time and energy. Why in the fuck aren't people talking about this more? Hello, like, isn't if you're if you're a states person and you're a politician, you're there to serve the people, and you haven't started talking about this technology, we've got to question why these people are even there, right? And especially when you go through the analytical process you've just given, that's what I love as well. Like, you're a surgeon, right? You took that brain power and you pumped it into like working out what value investing was because you need to save your money. And at the end of that process, you realize that that model doesn't work, and you've come across something called Bitcoin that, with your analysis, makes sense. Okay. Well, that is something that someone else can look at and say, well, if Jason's interested in it, then I need to probably take a look. Uh, and that's what I hope that these conversations yeah, I, draw out yeah. is that more people Agreed. take an interest in it. Agree. And I think, and I think I would always say, just like, just like you're implying is that, you know, please, I, I implore people to do their own research. I, I don't at all want, want the Bitcoin community to come across as one that says, oh, just trust us, just buy it. It's great. It'll never fit. Right. I mean, do your own research. I think most people will find just like you and I did that when you start doing that research, you continue down that path because it is so interesting. And you understand, like you so aptly said, Jake, that it's a foundational thing. It's not, it doesn't belong in the same discussion as equities. No way. It's it's not an investment. It's a foundational principle that everything else rests upon and in you know to your point we we know why it's not getting talked about right it, because it completely disintermediates central banks central control the banking system it takes really that it takes them out of out of the system um and you know i mean how much time jamie Dimon at chase and these other huge bank executives spend in washington dc is is uh, notable and the reason they're there is to support their own existence right mm-hmm. um so you know and again i'm not trying to say a conspiracy theorist but let's be honest here follow the incentives and i'll show you the behavior mm-hmm. you know um, um but you're right i i absolutely with you when you talk about that just the pure foundation upon which everything else is built. That's the level that Bitcoin is. It's, it's not any higher or lower. Mm. And we, we did touch on it earlier, like Bitcoin being separate to crypto, the, the crypto projects that are out there that you can see on all the, the, the cryptocurrency exchanges that you can buy, they're not the potential base layer for the monetary system. They are a team of people they can change the rules like Ethereum. It, this is this is true, right? They can literally change the rules whenever they want. So it's the same. It's the same game. I think they're very similar to you know buying into an early stage startup. You don't know where it's going to go. It's got a massive potential market, and yeah, sure, really smart team. So chuck some cash in, but you want to do that across fifty bets, and you want to do that with a very small amount of money, and maybe follow on into the ones that have been particularly good in terms of progress. And then you've also got to know when to time the market. And if you can do that, then sure, you might make yourself some really good gains in fiat terms, but then you want to price it against the, the, the gain of Bitcoin itself during that period. And the gains aren't nearly as spectacular. And then it's a case of, okay, well, actually, what are you buying here? Like, it's just, it's completely right. different. And I think a couple of salient points too, and, and it's a point that you brought up earlier that, that Michael Saylor says, those are securities. Those are securities, right? Yeah. Those are different than Bitcoin, which is property, it's a commodity, right? There's a difference and you have to learn that. The other thing that I tell people is 
you can get involved in, you know, buy whatever you want, you know, Jake coin or Jason coin or, or, you know, um, what was that's the, your the choice, com- right? You can do whatever. Yeah, the, you like. There's another one. What was it called? Come rocket. I mean, that I really want to spend money on that, but like <laughs> the, the point is you can get into these things when they're worth fractions of a penny. Here's the problem. You also have to have a market and liquidity to get out. So if, if let's say you put a million dollars in and it's, it's worth a one cent and then it goes up to 25 cents. Okay. You haven't made any money you have on paper. When do you make money? You have to find a willing buyer. Mm. And, and if you can't find a willing buyer, you have to find a dealer, a broker dealer that sits in the middle of that relationship that supplies liquidity to that market, meaning they have to pay you 25 cents for each of your come rocket coins. Yeah. Okay. The problem is in those situations, the liquidity completely evaporates. Mm. So, you know, you think you actually own something that's worth something. Think again. <laughs> A lot of times there's no exit liquidity. And Jason, actually what you're highlighting here is the importance of liquidity. Yeah. Um, I, I frankly, so over the last 10 years, I, I briefly mentioned, so my father died, I inherited some money. I've made investments in a number of different asset classes. And one of those is real estate. And I'm just going through a very painful process of exiting from some physical real estate deals that I did now seven or eight years ago in central London. I took on speculative debt, did some renovation work, bought a property. Um, I bought two, in fact, with plenty of debt. And seven years later, the market's actually lower than where it was in 2014. So you want to get your money out. We've got to sell it for less than what you paid. And you've taken debt out to renovate those properties, which means that your actual net equity position on exit is significantly lower than what you put in. You're like, that wasn't part of the plan. So the question you have to ask, obviously, is you know, investing equals risk. And yeah. everyone will tell you that real estate is a sure bet, but I'm learning very, very hard way that it's not. And uh-huh. it's illiquid, right? You can only sell it to someone who wants to buy it. Well, if you can't find a uh-huh. fucking buyer, well, guess what? Your property is not valued at the right price. Down you right. go, down you right. go. And the same and, thing applies yeah, exactly. to these crypto projects. And, and you can, and, and, the, and the, another, way to, to, another way to think about liquidity of a market is how big the market cap is, right? True. So, so if the market cap for, in, as it relates to crypto, the market cap for Bitcoin is, is huge, right? It's around, a tr- well, now it's less than a trillion dollars, but it was up around a trillion dollars, right? As a retail investor, let's say, as an individual investor, um, who is saving in Bitcoin and you at some point need to liquidate that. I mean, there's deep liquidity in those markets, mm-hmm. right? When you own Cumrocket and, and <laughs> the market cap is $20,000, right? There's no liquidity there. Yeah. You're going to be the one holding the bag. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So Jason, we're pushing up on an hour, but um, I'm keen to ask this question because I'd love your insights. Um, as an industry insider in the medical business, um, you know, this is going to affect every every industry in theory where the government can no longer print money to suit what it wants. And therefore, the organizations and industry that it funds are going to see a different future. Um, as a surgeon, how do you see this playing out within the medical industry? Um, and how are incentive models currently structured? And how might they change in the future? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I hope 
that, you know, as, as well, incentive models right now, by and large, at least in the United States, and it's, it's, I get that it's different in Europe, and, and I believe there's nationalized healthcare in, in Australia, is that right? Uh, there is something called Medicare here, which definitely is a very socialist model of some form. I don't yeah. know exactly how it functions. I've not lived here a long time, but I grew up in the yeah. UK, which has the National Health Service, which is, right. you know, probably the leading healthcare should be free in a Western country type model, if that yeah. makes sense. So I'm very familiar with that. Yeah. yeah, United States is not that way, right? It's, it's very much a fee-for-service model. And so how are you incentivized? Well, you're incentivized to do volume. If okay. you come in to an orthopedic volume, surgery, sorry. Volume, meaning volume, yeah. Yeah. So like if you come in, Jake, to clinic and say that you're having knee pain, well, I could either give you a prescription for ibuprofen or I could tell you you need a knee surgery, right, to, to clean your knee up. Um, the fact is I'm going to get paid more to do a knee surgery on you. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is the way the world works, but what I'm suggesting is that in situations where there's a lot of gray right, which is oftentimes a case in medicine, in situations where there's a lot of gray, there's an incentive, either it's conscious or subconscious, to actually do the volume, do the thing that pays you more, right? That's just the way that the incentives work. It's not an indictment of anybody, because look, I know many, many physicians, and all of these people are well-intentioned humans, mm -hmm. so I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that I think what we're seeing is we're going to shift from a uh, a volume-based incentive, meaning a fee-for-service incentive, to one of value, right? How much value can I provide? Well, what's valuable to you? What's valuable to you is that you can do what you want to do. Speaking, you know, back to the knee pain thing, right? What's valuable to you is that you can continue to exercise, continue to run, continue to do those activities that you find enjoyable in your life. What's valuable to you isn't necessarily that you do or don't get a surgery. And so, can I be judged on delivering value, right? Which in essence is a truth signal. Can I be judged on delivering what truly matters to you and paid that way versus paid on volume? Why are things based, based on volume? Why, is, why do we live in fee-for-service? It's the same thing. When there's inflation, you're always chasing higher and higher profit margins, right? So you're, you're effectively always going to do what offers you the most amount of money because you have to, to keep pace. Um, gosh, I'd love it to be different, right? I'd love it to, I'd love to live in a world where, where we can provide medical care for people simply because it's the right thing to do. Mm. Or, or equally like value equals health. Therefore, yeah. if someone's healthy, they get the most value. Now, how does that play out? I'm not sure. Whereas at the right. moment, the sicker the patient, the more value the medical industry can uh, right. can get, in a sense. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and this is, I mean, this this gets right into the core of how fascinating Bitcoin is because it, it completely, it's radical, right? It's a radical, radical innovation. And I was looking at long-term sustainability issues and commodity uh, consumption and just this, this crazy commercialized consumption-driven economy system that we live in um, as much regulation as they say that you know the united nations are going to bring in and all these governments that are getting voted in based on their climate policies more regulation is not the answer 
And I did client, I was clean tech investing. We were looking for breakout hockey stick growth in early stage technology companies. They're, in, they're, they're about growth, 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 growth. Mm. But the elephant in the room in the environmental space is that consumption is not being addressed. No one like, okay, fine. Patagonia is like a retail brand of the type of people that say buy one jacket, but like they're a tiny percentage, right? So no one's yeah. talking about this elephant in the room, as I mentioned, which is consumption patterns. And you think, okay, well, none of this sustainability stuff, it's all bullshit. And then you get a bit more conspiratorial and you realize that perhaps it's been used for control and, you know, we're all doomed. Climate change is terrible. Do what I tell you. And that's a bit more of the, you know, the Bitcoin mentality coming through, I think, because you become more able to make decisions on your own and to look at the world in a more analytical sense. But well, that actually doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but what you've just highlighted is another angle to this, which is then the business models that we, you know, create healthcare mm. around. Uh, and I think this will start to happen in so many other places that we haven't even th thought about at this stage, or I haven't yet spoken to someone that told me about it in a certain way. So, wow, how interesting. I think you're precisely right, Jake, and you make a really good point. And, and ultimately, right, money is a tool that we use to communicate, right? It can, it's, you know, in the sense that it's a unit of account, right? It communicates so much information in a free market. And so if we can actually have that tool of communication be based upon truth, you're right, the effects of that are so pervasive. And wouldn't it be great if we could create a world in which the base layer of communication is truth mm. and, and people are actually able to think for themselves. Mm. Imagine that, like there, there's no more narrative manipulation and no more, you know, um, being able to kind of pull the strings behind the scene, you know, never mind the man behind the curtain type of stuff. Mm. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Oh, absolutely. Well, Jason, listen, an hour's flown by. I've, I've loved getting to know you on this conversation and uh, what you bring to the table with looking glass and your background is, is absolutely awesome. I'm, I'm sure there'll be plenty of people out that will find real value in this conversation. And you've ended it on a very positive and optimistic uh, view of the future. Uh, my final question is, where can people get in touch if they wanted to reach out? Yeah, it's been a pleasure for me too, Jake. You are a I'm sure other people have told you this, but you are a very natural conversationalist and uh, um, doing an outstanding job with interviewing folks. And, and I have tip to you for putting together this podcast idea because I think it is very unique and I, and I am looking forward to hearing more from you. Thank so you. I think that's, that's wonderful. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Um, so lookingglasseducation.com is, is the website that we're at. Um, and then we also have a Twitter handle, uh, which is uh, Looking Glass Edu, at Looking Glass Edu. And then me personally, you'll have to you'll have to fight in line for all 350 or whatever of my followers on Twitter, Jake, because it's uh, <laughs> pretty pop, pretty active on social. Media. I'm one of them. <laughs> um, and uh, so it's at Sansoni S A N S O N E underscore J M. Cool. And, and actually, that just um, Twitter is. These social media companies, they're so dangerous. Like 350 yeah. followers doesn't equal value. Right, right. Like it just, it's nuts. Like follow account really means fuck all. Like 
this has been an incredibly rich and an interesting conversation which i've learned so much which other people will learn from and so your message is is incredibly valuable but the the, the main metric that we kind of use to 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 follow on twitter is just like it's complete garbage it's actually very similar to the fiat mindset isn't it it is right and you know honestly jake if i can reach one other person with this podcast and some light bulb goes off then yeah. then you and i have both happy days exactly. well jason thanks so much for your time really appreciate you joining me thank you jake pleasure